Hey guys, Jim from Creative Plan Podcast Network here, and joining me today is Brandon Ayton, publisher of Wild Skies, a story-driven diesel punk RPG of anthropomorphic animals where sky pirates fight for survival over 1930s Europe. Hey, Brandon. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. And uh, by the way, thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, always a great opportunity to be able to talk about the product that we've worked so hard on. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you very much. And speaking of product, first and foremost, I'd like to uh, say, what is Wild Skies? Wild Skies is first book, Europa Tempest, Wild Skies Europa Tempest. This is the first book in our Wild Skies game line. It's a, a setting that we kind of we kind of fell in love with in a game that we were we were running in our own personal game group. And so we took that setting and we said, okay, we can really do something with this. It is an anthropomorphic setting, so all of the characters are animals. Set in a Europe where the Great War never really ended. There were some revolutions and some armistice discussions, but in the grand scheme of things, it just kind of fizzled out. And it's not really an interwar period because World War II isn't really on the horizon. It's just a, a constant conflict and struggle right now it just keeps kind of simmering it's a diesel punk setting so as opposed to a lot of super high-tech stuff a lot of the problems are, are considered solved with a bigger and dirtier engine we we kind of describe it to to people as tailspin smashed up with sky captain in the world of tomorrow it's got a really pulp <laughs> feel and a lot of fun okay I, I absolutely love that that mashup comparison there yeah it's really that's the the feel we wanted to go for you know where in, in, a, in a pulp setting you know like you're reading an old old comic book where you know here's a scientist with a ray gun like what is a ray gun i don't know but you don't want to get hit by it you know it's <laughs> that kind of stuff you know it just taking that that the fun nature of the pulp setting and kind of making it a little gritty and just having a lot of fun with it i could see lots of aviator goggles with grease smeared on your face you know <laughs> yeah really and uh you know the the adding the the anthropomorphic mix you know me and my uh my, my partner co-writer um matt we grew up watching tailspin when we were kids and that was one of the things we always liked and we we're like man It'd be really cool to now that we're we're older, we're uh, well versed in you know the histories of that time period and these nations as they they grew and fell and et cetera. And we should we should have some fun with this. And that's why we actually brought that into our our initial game group, our initial setting when we were just toying around with it. And it was so much fun that we said, I think other people would would get a kick out of it. And we, we talked with a few people and gauged some interest. Uh, a lot of people we trust we've been gaming with for a while and people, other people in the industry. And they, we were pretty much told, like, how soon can you get this done? I want to play it. Oh, that's awesome. I, I could just see that one of, yeah, this is your idea. I like your idea. I want to play it. Can we play tonight? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> as, as you have to worry about, you know, hey, you've got your writer's Bible of all your notes. And, hmm. How to, how to get that wrapped up for somebody into a game. Right. I mean, one one thing I love when I saw the the cover art for, for the Kickstarter was I'm like, 
wow, this looks like it would be great because you know I grew up you know watching Tailspin, but but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a huge influence. It was one of the first RPGs I really got into playing. Yeah, and and I love the animal characters because you can just have so much fun with them. It's like one of the first. Uh, Back in the day, groups that we played with, we played the Sparrows in the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle RPG from Palladium. Right, right. And, and we just had yeah. a blast because you get to, as a role player, you get to play I'm an animal and I'm a person. So there's even more things you can play with and have fun with. Absolutely. And so that was my very first RPG. You know, I played it awesome. in sixth grade, followed very shortly by the Robotech RPG. Um but the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness. That was my mm-hmm. very first RPG. It's where I cut my teeth. And it stayed with me. And I, I really enjoyed that setting. As, you're, you know, as you said, you know, you get to play an animal, so you have these cool animal powers and whatever. But you also are a person. You mm-hmm. have personhood. So there were a lot of questions that I always had growing up and even playing that game, revisiting it later in life in high school and college that I always had questions about that we actually kind of dive into in Wild Skies for, you know, for that one in particular, you know, uh, the question of personhood. In our setting, humans never existed. These aren't mutant animals. These are the the people of the world. There's just a, a divergent path in the history and the evolutionary path and but in the setting you know there are still chickens and pigs and other animals that are raised as livestock and you know being Mm -hmm. called an animal is kind of an insult it means you know you're dumb you're not you're not a person there's no there's no level of rational or intelligent thought in you and so like the you know we have a great bit of art that was done by an artist named Mike Mike Muma, and it's it's a some foxes raiding a farm, so they're stealing <laughs> they're stealing chickens from this farm, and they're being chased by a horse and a cow. And in the farmyard, you see this hen feeding the chickens. Like you know, she's out there in her dress and apron, dro- dropping bird seed and feeding the chickens. And I'm like, that's exactly <laughs> what would go on in this setting. You know, they. There are animals that eat animals. There are there are characters that eat animals, and there are those who don't. Stuff like that. So <laughs> that's awesome. So there's actually the whole setup of evolution of of, its, of the people versus the animals. Right there, and there are people, especially in, in their scientists in the setting that you know would could go into more description of it. But effectively, it's yeah, they share a common ancestor. They're not the same thing, but they might share ancestor kind of like uh in evolutionary biology humans and apes have a common ancestor but we're not the same thing Mm -hmm. so it's it's that that parallel that that's awesome see that was that was going to be one of my questions is if there was also going to be uh humans in the setting so we we do include we do include in character creation uh a section that says well what if i just want to play this setting as humans and you can you just skip the animal selection we have over 40 animal types that you can pick from and each one of those animal types itself is pretty general like we have raptor but that covers eagles and falcons and hawks and so if you want a specific kind of falcon yeah you can be that but you would choose raptor and you know you just build that into your character concept but if you're interested in playing the setting but you don't want to deal with all the animal abilities or anything just skip that step boom you're done awesome 
that, that's that's one thing I do like as a as a game master is is having that that fluidity so that way you can play with it to make the players have exactly what they want. Exactly, and forgive me if you're gonna you want to go into this a little later, but in the the setting itself, um, in the mechanics themselves, we really wanted to ensure the feel that the game master is still a player of this game. It's all collective storytelling. You're Mm -hmm. all telling the same story and having fun with it. And so we want to make sure that all the players around the table are uh, part of that narrative and making sure the game master is involved. You're all, you might have differing motivations, but you're all telling the same story. That's cool. Cause that's, that's one of the things I always say is the GM has to be a huge fan of the players. Cause you know, that's, that's how you make the story happen. Exactly. So uh, since this is going to be a post-World War One setting, what are the factions that are actually still at play for this not-so-Cold War flux of a, of a post, post-war World War? So since this is the first book, the, mm-hmm. this is the main book, we had to choose somewhere, and we really liked being able to kind of discuss Europe a little bit. So Europe, it, there's still some of the same flavors of nations that you have out there during the rise to Second World War, but the all of the politics have kind of influenced things slightly differently. We wanted to make sure that the alternate history, the divergence points, were all plausible given real-world politics. So if we look at Europe as a whole, you know, we, we have the... We've, the Hegemony, which is England. It's uh, the United Kingdom is pretty much this. They they had a, a rebellion and now they're they're in a, a pretty authoritarian state. We have the German Empire, where instead of uh, instead of like falling into <laughs> instead of falling into the state that led up to the rise of the Nazi movement in Germany, the Kaiser actually fled with a good portion of the Luftmarine, the the air navy. And the German experiment kind of failed. And so they asked the Kaiser to return and run the nation. So the German Empire is actually a little larger, and um, it's still under that that empirical state. The German Empire actually captured a lot of part of Hungary, part of Austria, part Mm -hmm. of Poland. They they grabbed a lot of stuff. And so when we look at uh, the map, we actually have this little offshoot that goes over towards uh, towards the Black Sea. The map looks drastically different than what a map of Europe right before World War II looks like. But Germany is still they still have kind of a, an expansionist mindset. And so in there are a lot of a lot of people in the setting that feel as though Germany uh, is kind of the the ones to watch right now. That's cool because you know. It's just fun to sometimes have them as the bad guys or the good guys, depending well, yeah. on what faction or you're the good guys. <laughs> Well, and the things we also wanted to make sure to do was to show that in the in each one of these nation states, there are plenty of uh, people who would be considered heroic or mm-hmm. good guys. And there's there are also rebellious factions within them, people who uh, might be taking their political their political aspirations a, a different way than what the the main government is and so we wanted to we wanted to offer a lot of that that world information so players and game masters could really uh flex their imaginary muscle that's cool so that way they've got lots of you know depending on you could you know because one thing i love about the setting that you've got is you could have one faction as one storyline finish it and then play the game from the other faction's point of view absolutely yeah well and we also to that effect we kind of took something like that with France 
in France, we have the French Social Republic and we have the Republic of France. So these two nations have formed out of what was the original French ideal. And they, you know, one is fascist and one's a republic. And they kind of have, as opposed to building building the, the Maginot Line on the, the eastern part of France, they actually have a kind of a dividing border that runs east and west through through the nation. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the other main area that we, we cover in the, the large portion of the book is the Russian Empire, where in that instance, the czar pretty much just left. Uh, he went aboard his flying wings. He has this big flying palace and just left. And then all of the other factions, the Reds, the Whites, uh, they're they're fighting amongst themselves in order to claim validity with the Tsar. So they may eventually meet up with the Tsar, uh, refuel him, things like that, in order to gain his favor. So Tsarist Russia is still a thing, but you also have a wide array of political ideologies in that that area. We have a, a number of minor nations too, and I say minor from size, scale, not necessarily minor in influence. Around around the uh, the nation, we have the Scandinavian Union. Uh, we talk about the Iberian Confederation and some warlords that uh, are over there. There's one like, in the Pyrenees. It's uh, this bull who is of Basque descent who pretty much controls the Pyrenees, and that's the protectorate of Roland. The island of Malta is kind of an, its own little pirate haven, uh, and we talk about the Ottoman Republic over where the Ottoman Empire is in, in Turkey. And so that's that was a, a lot of fun to kind of go in and say, all right, let's see how these would uh, plausibly exist in our setting. So, you know, that, that could be interesting, too. Uh, have you touched on uh, the Americans or? So we mention America in the book, but that is actually going to be the second book in the Wild Skies setting. It's tentatively titled Wild Skies Liberating Strife. And we hope to, uh, once we get back from Genton, assemble the production team We've with some uh, artists and some writers already. And we're just going to uh, finalize that crew and get started on that pretty much right after Genton. And we should uh, launch that uh, Kickstarter for that with Q4, maybe early Q1. Oh, nice. Yeah. That'll be that'll definitely be a good addition to the uh, group. So you did mention Gen Con. Let me ask you, what are the conventions do you guys plan to go to for this year, maybe next year? So we are members of the IGDN, which is the Indie Game Developers Network. Mm-hmm. And so we have uh, a unique opportunity to make sure that our products are available at some conventions that we may not be able to personally attend. So I think we are planning to have uh, Wild Skies for sale through the IGDN at PAX Unplugged. That's one that we're, we're looking forward to, and maybe a, a couple others. There's a couple that are local to us. We're based in Louisville, Kentucky, Lexicon and Conglomeration, and we're looking to have a personal presence there, and uh, I think we're going to try to have an Origins presence uh, next year. Awesome. Because, yeah, that's definitely one of the things that we always love is, is having new games get you know get around to the convention so everybody can get to enjoy them and pretty much get the excitement so, going for them. And the great thing about um, having Wild Skies out there through the IGDN is, as I said, you know, if we can't make it to the convention itself, the product is still there. So if someone has heard about it and they go to their local convention, they can still pick up the product if, uh, if IGDN has a, a basic presence there. 
That's awesome. And uh, are you you're also on drivethroughrpg.com, right? Yes, we're on drivethroughrpg, and uh, I know that our our products uh, are available there. We have some supplemental products in addition to the Wild Skies Europa Tempest Core Book. There, it's also it's available as hardback and softback. If you buy it there, you also get the PDF for free, or you can uh, just purchase the uh, electronic file and have access to that. Uh, our supplemental material there right now. We have a character sheet template. We have a, a moral compass template. We'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about the system itself. We're going to be having a quick start character guide up there. So if you just want to go to a, a game shop and run some games real quick, you can hand that, that document off and some character sheet. Say, okay, pick this stuff, write this on your character sheet, and let's go. And we're going to have a, a quick start guide for basic rules and some combat overviews. So just we're, we're using DriveThruRPG to also get out some of that supplemental material that will really help people run the game and play the game and enjoy the game for years to come. We're, we're going to be having some basic adventures up there that were initially stretch goals for the Kickstarter. So we have two adventures on the way and uh, some additional factions for the setting, some mercenary groups that have been created. These are all in development right now. We've been in contact with the backers who backed at that level. So all of that will be also posted on DriveThruRPG as well. That's awesome. See, see, it shows both a love for the backers of the Kickstarter, which is cool, and it definitely shows your love for the GMs that you're hooking the GMs up with that extra information online, which that makes things a lot easier to run a game too. Absolutely. You know, as, as someone who is one of the primary game masters of our group, having that information is, is just perfect. You know, oh, you yeah. Can't, yeah, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> we have to be that information in order to, to run to run the game smoothly. And if someone's just using some notebook paper to write their character sheet down, it may not be the best way for them to do that, but they don't know any better if mm -hmm. they aren't familiar with the system or haven't played the game. I think bare minimum having character sheets available for people to write their information down, it, it's just a, a, it's a, a wonderful... It's a godsend. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Having access to those things online is great because that way it makes things so much easier and uniform around the game table. As well as, mm -hmm. you know, if it's easier for the GM to learn, it's easier for the GM to teach. That's, I mean, that heck, that's one thing I love about Quick Starts is, you know, it's a great way for you to, to feel the system out and share with new players. Right. And we're actually working on one of those right now. Uh, just so we can have that available to the, the game masters and to people who just want to review it. Throughout the, the, the process, we had Quick Start character creation document that was out on DriveThruRPG for a long time. And people would go out there every once in a while and download it and see what it was all about and mm -hmm. see if they enjoyed the character creation process. And we received some really good feedback on the process that helped streamline the creation process in the book. That's awesome. So, so since we are speaking about character creation, I, I did have one quick question about establishing dynamic player characters. I love that phrase because I always tell people make characters that are cool and action -y, right. you know. How does the game, right. you know, reinforce that? So before you do anything in our character creation process, we make sure that the player has a clear concept of what their character is. Whether that is uh, as simple as, I want to be a rough-and-tumble mechanic who's on the run from his former government because he's a deserter. Great! That's fantastic. That's Or, if someone says, okay, I have this huge backstory, I want to make sure, you know, I've read this historical information, and I, I love it, and here's the kind of stuff that I want to do, but even better, you now have a, 
uh, an idea of what you want to do with that that character. And then because the rest of the character creation process is pretty much pick and choose, you are able to use those decisions and have an informed basis for that. Always making sure you stick to your true character concept. And that might sound like a little thing, but I've known people who, well, they'll roll eight numbers on dice and say, okay, now based on these numbers, what kind of character can I have? Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make sure that our system allowed the player to play what they wanted. Yeah. So they could stay. That, that, that's a fantastic setup. Plus it's great for GMs out there because you know, it's providing GMs so much info. Exactly. And the good thing about that too, is that in addition to the moral compass, which is kind of how we deal with alignment and experience, uh, which also kind of helps the GM. We also included a section in there about the group dynamic. Why are these people even together? Everyone has inter-party conflict in their their games, Mm -hmm. but we wanted to make sure that, you know, if you have Joe, the knife-wielding rabbit assassin, you wanted to make sure that he could exist with Mariana, the wandering chicken nun. You know, (laughs) why are these these characters together on, on an airship, and why do they tolerate each other's presence? So we wanted to make sure that, you know, right off the bat, you didn't have players in, uh, players in immediate conflict. That's cool. I mean, it's, and it saved the GM from having to come up with the standard trope of, and you all meet in a tavern. Yeah, you start in a bar. Instead, yeah. you're, you work for a delivery company with a seaplane on a tropical island has, that has a Casablanca-style bar that your orangutan <laughs> friend works at. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, you know, we have plenty of opportunities to... Uh, we leave plenty of opportunities for, for players to have that moment if if that's the story they want to tell. But we also uh, give some opportunities for the game master and the players to all come up with that story hook together. That's cool. And that's another thing we wanted to make sure. You know, I said the GM is a player. We always reinforce that the game master is also trying to enjoy himself. The players are trying to enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. We want everyone to take part in that story. That that's good because cooperative storytelling is when the magic happens. You know, when everyone's working together, the common goal, and then all of a sudden the GM's got some really good script that he's written up that surprises everyone, and that's that's when the magic happens. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you mentioned the compass. That's the alignment system, right? Yes, moral compass. Mm-hmm. The uh, the entire system that we use for the game is called the compass system, but the moral compass itself is the the combination of the experience system and the alignment system. We, we developed this because we wanted to kind of get away from that, uh, that standard, oh, well, you're lawful good, or you're, you know, you're goody two-shoes, or, mm-hmm. you know, this, uh, this death knight over here is just, you know, obviously the worst person ever. We wanted to make sure that we could kind of leave those tropes behind and, allow the characters to have a rich motivation and reward system. So the template, and it's included on every character sheet, and we also have a larger version that's available for download. It it looks like a a compass rose almost, and everyone would effectively start in the middle of their moral compass, and and that's where their player would start with with effectively quote-unquote zero experience points. And when you're creating your character, you have the opportunity to create your moral compass. 
every point on that compass has two lines. One line is for your motivation for that. And that axis, the north-south, for example, would have one motivation on top and one motivation on the opposite end. So the, the good thing about that is it allows the true dichotomy there, that, that full range. And then each side of that axis get a reward. And these are all assigned by the, the player themselves. Okay. So I say, okay, well, I want to go from wealth to sacrifice. That's my north-south. I, I am a, a greedy character. I want to earn all the money that I can. Okay. Um, so my, I'm going to assign my true north, my true motivation to be wealth. I'm like the Scrooge McDuck character. Uh, and then sacrifice would be the very, would be my South motivation. Well, it would make sense that when I assign something to uh, a reward to that, that true North motivation, that uh, maybe I'll just assign, have more cash on hand, some money. So the closer I get to my true North motivation, the more money I earn uh, okay. at each milestone. You could also assign something like, I'm going to assign a new skill, or I'm going to learn a new animal ability, or I'm going to increase my attributes to get better at something. So these are all things that you can do and customize. You can customize that throughout the, the creation or throughout the, the storytelling process. The, you also have an opportunity to move on that compass throughout storytelling. As I said earlier, everyone starts in the middle of that compass when they start telling their story, and everyone gets a point for playing the game. And then we also, as we are a pushing the storytelling motivation, you get an extra point if your party says that you're the best role player or the best contributor to the story that session. Oh, and any awesome. ties are broken by the game master and get an extra point so they can advance along their path. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that path should also drive the story. If I'm going towards wealth, um, my character is not going to be giving money away at every step. I'm not going to be, you know, throwing coins to the, you know, to the, the beggar on the street. That's, mm -hmm. That wouldn't be me pulling towards that motivation. But if something happened throughout the course of the story and I wanted to migrate closer to another, another direction, we have multiple steps on that compass, which will allow you to, move completely around to an opposite setting on um, on three uh, six and nine um, just numbers on the on the compass mm -hmm. or at any given time when you're able to to spend a point to advance you can spend one point to just switch one axis over okay. so ultimately you're moving along on this compass and we have examples in the in the book both written and visual on how that happens but it's all going based on how that story's going, how your those motivations are contributing and playing into that story. And uh, it was a lot of fun to work with and a lot of fun to see in action. Yeah, it sounds like a great system that's constantly, not only is it constantly evolving, but it's completely player driven so that we can push for this is what I want, this is my end goal, you know. And this is exactly. And the reward is, is yours. You choose what reward you're going for. Yeah, that's that's fantastic because it puts the power right there in the player of here's how you level your character and here's how your story evolves. Mm -hmm. And once you achieve a goal, if you make it all the way to the end of uh, one of your goals and you achieve that and get that reward, then you have the opportunity to erase everything on that uh, moral compass template and build your moral, comp moral compass again hey. in a completely different 
because we all know that how things change in life. Exactly, exactly. You achieve your motivation, and you're like, oh, that's I'm a completely different person now. Where am I going to go? You know, it's it's that old adage that uh, be careful if you get what you wish for. Exactly. Now you realize you have to change gears and go di- go a different direction. Right. That that sounds like a really great game mechanic. Yeah, we had as I said, we had a lot of fun uh, coming up with that and moving towards that. And we're actually we've been talking about uh, just building some lighter RPGs in the future, just based solely on that. And we'll see how that we'll see how that goes uh, in the future. But right now, in a setting like Wild Skies, it storytelling wise, it just pays dividends. Oh, it, it sounds like it'll be huge in motivating the group and keeping the story going because that's that's one of and like like you said with the alignment systems, a lot of groups stagnate because they think they're locked into this one character thing and you can't change. Exactly, yeah. and, and you know, so many people, so many game designers look at that and they say, real life and real personality is much more complex than all right. Now I can make you one of these nine nine choices. All right, have at it. Mm-hmm. A lot more complex than that. Yeah, so it's like we used to joke about in Dark Sun. You know, the when everyone's hungry, your alignment immediately drops to selfish. <laughs> you know, there needs to be that flexibility as a player that you know when times are desperate, sometimes somebody has to die. You know, there's no perfect answer. Right. So that that is cool that it gives you that whole you know that the evolving dichotomy of of the the risk reward you know that that sounds like a great system well thank you yeah as i said we had a lot of fun with it so system wise how do you guys resolve uh, combat and social conflict so the uh social conflict and combat you know and all skills effectively are all handled by a percentile dice system really when we were talking earlier about the how a lot of gamers really understand their system like oh i rolled a one that means i failed do i drop my weapon do i you know stab my buddy or oh i got a a natural 20 like do i blow the barn door completely off how does that how does that work well what we did was we took the the very core skill roll system is as we made it a percentile Mm role and we have um four different uh areas where you can uh fall into you can get a critical failure, a regular failure, a success, or a resounding success. And failure means, oh, man, I didn't I didn't do it. A success means, great, I completed my objective. A critical failure means something bad happens as dictated by my skill or by uh, a weapon or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and a resounding success means something good happens, either by the skill or by the tool that I'm using. Uh, sometimes both, many times both, which is great. And we have different skill difficulties. So, you know, some skills are easier to do than others. Some skills don't even require a role, but other things get very, very difficult to accomplish so that the skill range might narrow for a success or a resounding success. So just right off the bat, you can roll your percentile dice and see where you you fall. The more skilled you are at doing a task, whether it's combat or whether it's a social skill or a, you know, the first aid or something like that, The more skilled you are, you can have up to five skill dice, which are six-sided dice. And they can adjust that roll up or down uh, to try to fall into the range that you want to fall into. And I say down um, because there are many opportunities for a um, 
for someone based on bonuses or a really good role or something to fall over the their resounding success range. Um, so I got 113 on uh, with all of my bonuses and everything. I need to try to move down into my resounding success range. You can say I'm going to roll my three skill dice to try to go lower and adjust that down. Okay. So it's really it's really about accuracy than rolling a super high number. And we also allow uh, for contested skills like combat or social skills. Uh, other people can use their skill dice to affect your roll. So, so Jim, you're you're trying to stab me. You mm-hmm. roll your percentile dice, and you get a resounding success. And right. I know that you're a good you're a good knife fighter. I don't want to get stabbed a lot by Jim. <laughs> So let's say, Jim, you've rolled your percentile dice, you get your resounding success, and you're going to hold on to any skill dice that you have because you don't need them. Just in case. I, on the other, yeah, just in case. I, on the other hand, am going to use my three skill dice to try to get out of the way or try to deflect your, your blow. So I roll, and I move you outside of the success range, uh, the resounding success range. Um, so I would probably find out you know, did you roll a 99 or did you roll like a nine, uh, a 95, mm-hmm. whatever I'd figure out if I want to move you up or down, that doesn't matter. And let's say I do. And then you say, Oh, well, I'm a skilled knife fighter. I'm going to roll these two. And you might be able to move yourself right back into that resounding success range. It still gives me an opportunity to have active there, mm-hmm. but also uh, it gives you an opportunity to show that you're skilled using your, your dice themselves rather than rolling your big dice pool all at once, all at the same time. You have that flexibility. That's awesome. The good thing about two is, you know, if I, if you roll and you're like, whew, man, I just succeeded at that. That's good because I don't have any skill dice there. Well, I might have skill dice and I can roll and make you fail. So it's in your skill dice can also help you get out of a terrible situation if you roll um, a critical failure, which means your gun blows up or your engine is completely irreparable and you are stranded in the middle of the desert, you know, your skill dice can help bump that up out of a, a critical failure into a just a regular failure, which, you know, all contributes to the story. Yeah, which that's a great mechanic because it's giving the players a resource so they can they, they feel that they're empowered in the story. And remember earlier how I said that the Game Master is a player and we always want to encourage that Game Master to be a player? Mm-hmm. Every session, the Game Master is allocated 5d6, which can be used to augment any role in the game that's given done by the players. In our, in our personal games, we always refer to the rule of cool or... Uh, the rule of awesome or something like that. Whenever someone did something and we're like, yeah, absolutely. You can jump off that burning building into that (laughs) helicopter and fly away. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just awesome. We wanted the players to be able to be invested in the story. And from a narrative perspective, if they're trying to do something that seems improbable based on what's going on, but they describe it in a cool way and Mm -hmm. maybe they don't have the skill dice to really do that. The game master can assign one, two, or up to all five uh, to a particular role in throughout the entire session, uh, cool. just to help make something happen. Like, yes, I want to see that, 
because I think that would be a cool addition to the story. Helps them stunt it up, proverbially speaking. Exactly. That that's cool because then it makes you know it it motivates them to show off and you know be big damn heroes you know. Exactly, it, it, you know, in in a, the pulp setting, mm-hmm. we we wanted to make sure we could drive that home. Yeah, because that's a, in a lot of a lot, few players out there, they don't you know get the pulp feeling where you do crazy ridiculous action hero things. Because, exactly. Because you you're big damn heroes. That's that's the setting. <laughs> that's an important part of what your character is. Even if even if your character doesn't start out heroic in the situation they're in, that's what they're going to become. Well, we we include in the the book. There's an eight page comic which is actually how our first playtesting session went. <laughs> and there's there's a character in there who. Jump! He climbs a rope onto an airship that had latched onto ours, and he fights someone up there, and the airship ends up blowing up. And so he just jumps off of the airship to beat someone up on the way down and steal his parachute. And I'm like, <laughs> absolutely. That's fantastic. That is exactly what your character would do. Here, have some skill dice and try to – or these were additional dice. Here, have mm-hmm. some dice and – Make that happen. I hope you survive. And, and that reinforces the concept of the GM's your biggest fan because, you know, dude, that was awesome. I want to see it happen. You know? Exactly. It gets that, that excitement. Do more of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the, you know, stunt it up and just make the action, you know, unfold before everyone, you know? Because that's, that's just cool. Because, hey, the, uh, I'm a big fan of the rule of cool, you know? Just... Everyone at the table wants to entertain each other, and if the GM can help support the players doing it, why not? You know, that makes perfect sense. Why not? Yeah. So I hope that I hope that kind of uh, explain kind of how the that that skill mechanic is. There's a, a more detailed explanation, of course, in the in the book, but really it all comes down to I'm going to roll my dice and I'm going to see where I go. Awesome. Um, in in combat, we we really wanted to to give the feel of of jockeying for position and really stemmed from the, the dog fighting that, you know, you, you would expect in a setting like this. Mm-hmm. And it carries over to the, the melee fighting and the pugilism and things like that. When you roll initiative, you're put in a particular order, but you can move up and down in initiative based on what you choose to do. Are you going to punch somebody? Or are you going to reel back and try to give them a haymaker? You know, are you defending somebody? What are you What are you doing? And certain moves move you up or down. In aerial combat, you can only attack people who are lower than you in initiative. So you're really trying to uh, keep moving up and up and up, however you can, so you can actually attack the fighter ace or something like that. If there's a turret on your vehicle, then it can attack anyone in initiative. So it does give some of those those other players who may not be jockeying for position a, a more influential role in that combat. I could just see some awesome dogfighting going on against the, the, the evil Red Baron who's a cardinal bird. <laughs> <laughs> Only to shoot him out of his plane and have him come flying after you with his machine gun. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> and he could. <laughs> so that's the that's the awesome thing with this kind of you know setting and, and the the in, the energetic game mechanic is is it motivates people to why not try to do that you know okay the guy's exactly. behind you he's got initiative he's shooting your plane out from underneath you take his plane. 
It is fun, right. Do something else. <laughs> it definitely sounds like you, you had fun designing the game mechanics, because this, this definitely sounds outside of the box, you know, type of game mechanics. What was the, the best part of game design for you for this game? So I think it, it's twofold. Um, number one was uh, conceptualizing the the moral compass like seeing how well that came together it was very rewarding and secondly it would have to be the the aerial combat and how well all of that really plays together and give that feel of a true dogfight you're really trying to get in a better position or if someone's trying to leave you can try to swoop in and get that last shot before they fly off into the sunset um it's a, it was a lot of fun to come up with those two things. And I know that my brother-in-law and partner, Matthew, had an excellent uh, opportunity to, to flex his muscles. I mean, he's, he's a, was a history major, and he is one of the, the smartest people I know. And he was able to uh, really make the, the setting um, – shine you know i was able to, to to chime in and help out with that and say okay here's what we think conceptually we should have mm-hmm. but giving it the plausibility was really uh astounding and the the stuff that uh, he was able to churn out is just amazing sounds like the two of you make a really good team with the whole storytelling and historical angle you know bring those two together just right and watch something fantastic come about yeah, and we we've written together uh, for a few years. Um, we've written some things for some other companies together, and um, we've also we've known each other since middle school, and we've played games together for you know <laughs> about a decade. So we've we've really uh, got a good feel for how the other uh, plays. That's really cool. So that way they can you know you guys can you know work off each other, knowing almost second guessing you know. The other person's, you know, receptions. Right. Is there anybody out there you wanted to make a shout out for that you've worked with before? Because by all means, you can feel free to plug anything. Oh well, you know, we really had a, an excellent opportunity to work on this on this product together. You know, M- Matthew, I couldn't have done this without uh, working with with him. He's uh, my partner. Uh, he's an excellent writer. He's an excellent uh, base of knowledge, and. You know, I know that he would be the first to uh, agree that there's absolutely no way we could have ever done this without all the support from our Kickstarter backers, from our uh, friends and our family, uh, to our individual gaming group, uh, to our playtesters. It was an excellent storm. It was a perfect storm of um, of support that we received. Also, um, we had a number of people in the industry who uh, gave us uh, support, words of advice, um, some of our artist friends who really stepped up and did uh, some excellent work. Um, and I'm gonna, I, I hope I don't miss anybody, but um, Brian Manning, Mike Muma, Chuck Walton, Amy Ashbaugh, Aspen Ayton, um, Nick Bradshaw, uh, they, they all did uh, art for the book and they did a fantastic job. Our buddy Knox, uh, Knox Gunn, he did the, all the layout and everything for the, the preparation of the file, um, and the layout of the book. And, uh, we've known Knox forever. He was our game master in college and, uh, has been running games for us and supporting us, um, 
in our nerdy hobbies for forever. So there's there's a bunch of people out there that uh, all contributed in their own special way to this product, and we just could not have done it without them. Good, strong team, you know. Great to have friends that you can, you know, especially it sounds like you've got your gamer friends that, you know, come back in the rest of, you know, life and have helped you support you in other, you know, things like making a book. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. I, I would also like to uh, to point out that there's a few other people, John Kennedy and Aloy LaSanta. I've known them from working with Third Eye Games. They really supported us as well, and they were able to answer any questions uh, along the way. Kevin Simbita at Palladium Books. Uh, I've known Kevin for for almost 20 years now, and Kevin is a mentor, and he is a really great friend um, to, to me and to my family, uh, and he has always provided uh, support for me throughout all of my processes. And there's a an organization here in Louisville, Nerd Louisville. They're a nonprofit organization that supports the gaming hobby in our local schools uh, and in our local community. And uh, so any proceeds that they have from any of their uh, gaming events or their fundraisers, they all go into supporting game programs in our school systems. So that's a, another great organization I'd like to shout out. That's a great organization. Yeah, it's it's because, say, getting kids into gaming for one, you know, I joke with friends that if you get your kids into gaming, they'll never get into drugs because, you know, they'll be broke. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> but, but honestly, gaming teaches kids so many great skills in life. I mean, lots of math, lots of math, writing, conceptualizing things, the actual, you know, the, the, the truth and consequence, you know. Getting kids to game is a huge thing that more people should do, and on top of that, it helps the hobby because, you know, 20 years from now, that that uh, youngster that you're gaming with might be writing the next cool RPG that's out there, or writing a cool book, or you know helping exactly. support you. You know. <laughs> well, you know my my son is four years old, and uh, he games with us. We we play No Thank You Evil. Oh, um, that's a great one. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great game. So we we play that every once in a while. But he also has his own board games and everything, and he even comes up with his own games and says, Daddy, let's play this game together. And like, okay. And so he teaches me the rules to this game that he made up. I love that he has that kind of imagination. That has to be nurtured, you know. That So often in life, you know, skills like that aren't nurtured and, you know, suppressed. That kind of thing is definitely something that should be nurtured and, you know, sp and, and grown. I agree 100%. Because, you know, come on, if it wasn't for the folks with imagination out there, we wouldn't have TV shows, movies, you know, beautiful artwork, awesome games to play. <laughs> right. But the, that is awesome. And it, and and I'm sure there's dozens of folks that you want to do a shout out to. But, you know, it's that award ceremony moment where it's like, I've got hundreds of names, but I can't think of them oh. right now. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I look at. I look at the the list of Kickstarter backers, and it just you know it makes my heart swell. Like the the support that we received from friends and family and people that that we've maybe only met online, maybe mm -hmm. never met at all, uh, and just knowing that um, through messages and emails um, from sending our the the PDF out to our backers that uh, people are really enjoying the product so far, and that's great to hear. Oh, yeah. I mean, on the Kickstarter, there's nothing but good things being said on the comments page. And, you know, I I also, I, I'm not afraid of uh, critique or harsh critics or anything like that. You know, I want to make sure that 
the products that Wet Ink Games puts out in the future are the best they can possibly be. And so we always look for constructive criticism and, you know, we yeah. want to, we always want to improve and be better. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the important things is, is taking that feedback and basically making a better thing out of it, you know? That's, that's you know, yeah. of course, that's one of the things I always joke. Getting feedback is always really difficult, it seems. <laughs> well, and it's, it's good to it's good to receive it and know that people are actually reading the product and and engaging with it. It's good to to have it and absorb it. As I said, when we put the the character creation documents out there initially, uh, we we had feedback that we were able to adopt and uh, absorb into the product itself. Yeah, especially for things like that, because it's like if if you would like X, please tell me so I can add it to the next one. You know exactly, and so. I think the the with the core mechanics already established, mm-hmm. uh, we know what we want from uh, writers that we're working with. The mechanics are there, the system is there, the feel of the game is in place. Um, being able to uh, advance our next product uh, at a faster pace uh, without sacrificing any quality is going to be our our goal we were a little late to deliver uh i think by eight months on this kickstarter which was a lot more than we ever wanted to be but um i know that with our our next one everything's going to be uh going to be great we've already been able to account for things that we've um, seen as barriers and stumbling blocks in the process and been able to mitigate them and we haven't even launched this one yet that's awesome i mean because especially you know it's it's the first major book i mean there's there's a lot of learning curves that happen along the way i mean uh, things are completely not in your control absolutely and but the good thing is the things that we are in control of we're able to to take that and we know where assignments need to go we know what the capabilities of our artists and our writers are and we know what the capabilities of our of ourselves are of what ink is so we know that we can we can move this forward and make sure we're putting out a, a great product for gamers to enjoy i'm definitely looking forward to getting our group to at least get a good one start going you know one of these conventions, probably, you know, after RingCon, I'm thinking, the next time we get together afterwards. That's, that's one of our, our local gaming conventions, and this year's theme is mutants, which will be, you know, superheroes, which will be fun. Yeah, well, we would love to, to uh, hear about whatever you do, and uh, if there's anything that we can do to help support that, let us know. I'll probably run them one of our core groups or some volunteers at the local game store through a, a one-shot just to get the game mechanics down and then definitely record a podcast episode or something if, if just a get some crazy wacky dynamicness going right that'd be great <laughs> i know i'm still thinking about that De- package delivery company <laughs> <laughs> it's just too good of a storyline to, to not use you know exactly right you you uh you have something that's enjoyable and something that, that fits the setting and uh you know having the opportunity for you know pirates and mercenary crews to fly all over europe i mean it's there it's oh, there heck yeah it, trust me, that's the, the concept is one that you can go in so many different amazing directions on it. I mean, and you could even just do the, hey, you're a free company from after the war. You know, there's just so many storylines that you could use. Right. See, now I'm tempted, like, I should start writing down a couple uh, one-page one-shots. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to stop you, I promise. <laughs> so uh, it is August. So, Brandon, something I was talking to you earlier about was the RPG a Day Challenge. So I do have three questions for the next three days after this will be posted that I was going to ask you if you wanted to answer those. Okay, sure. So for August the 8th, what is a good RPG for a session of two hours or less? 
Ooh, a good RPG for a session of two hours or less. I would probably say my go-to in that setting would be um, either oh, Thank You Evil, because I know that we as a... Um, as a as a group, you know, playing with my kid, uh, we've had a blast playing that game. Or a streamlined version of Fiasco. That'd be a, a quick one-shot version. Uh, I know that sometimes getting that set up might take a little little more than that, but if you're ready to play and you're playing with a, uh, a good group, I think Fiasco would be a, a, some fun with, you have some fun with that. Oh, heck yeah. We're, we're planning at uh, Raincon to do the superhero one that came in the newest Fiasco book. Just for games. Oh, good. <laughs> Just to see how <laughs> bad things can go. <laughs> so, so thank you. That was a hard question, by the way. That's one that uh, I'm still deciding how I'm going to answer that, you know, for myself. Oh yeah, there's. I mean, there's so many, but I think those those would be my my go-to. Okay, so here's an equally hard question. August the 9th, What is a good RPG to play for about ten sessions? You know, there's you know. Okay. So this one, I, I have a pretty solid answer for. Um, one of the people that I've written with before, his name is Taylor White. He's a, a horror writer, and he's uh, just a, a, a fantastic, has a fantastic imagination. He recently ran us through um, a hack of Apocalypse World um, that he wrote himself called Lonely World. And Lonely World, I know, is available to purchase. Uh, you know, we everyone in our game group like bought a copy of it. Like it's, in, as I said, it, it uses the Apocalypse World engine and adds some some mechanics. And it is a um, it is a horror setting that can be uh, modified however the players see fit. In uh, you know, in that setting. 10 sessions is about all you get before everything just hits the fan. And it is absolutely amazing. I, um, I loved everything he did with, uh, with his version of it. And I loved everything that, uh, we were able to do with the story and the conflicts that we had. It, it was just great. Um, so highly recommend lonely world, uh, an Apocalypse World Engine game by Taylor White. That's awesome. I'm gonna. I've heard the name, but I have not actually read it yet. So I'm definitely gonna have to give that a look. See. Yeah, absolutely. Pick it up. It's it's fantastic. Okay. Thank you very much. And now for the August the 10th. Where do you go for RPG reviews? Now I'm assuming from that question they mean like to to hear about other RPGs and review and things like that. Right. Um, so when I. I will listen to uh, to podcasts that are recommended to me uh, by friends. You know, I, I will go to my my day job and I'll listen to that stuff while I'm I'm doing some of my work. Um, but also, I uh, will use uh, Facebook recommendations that friends uh, share. A lot of friends in the, the industry or other writers uh, that they share. But also, um, if it's just uh, seeing something that that's coming out. Um, Kickstarter or ICV2. I always want to see what uh, either on ICV2.com is coming out in like the larger industry, but Kickstarter itself, I'm able to kind of see uh, what's going on um, just on my own through uh, through the industry. Uh, now, for the actual reviews of those products, 
uh, it's normally just uh, what I see on like uh, EN World or RPG.net or RPG.com. Um, you know, those those things I can mm-hmm. uh, go to. But um, yeah, normally it's just where, wherever I can find them in my social networks. Yeah, I, I agree on that one completely, especially about the uh, the podcast because that's that's one reason why we podcast. Is I used to listen to podcasts all the time when I was sitting at work doing data entry. Exactly, exactly. Crunching numbers and putting stuff in spreadsheets. Yeah, and just listening to people play. Put in your headphones. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's it's been fantastic talking to you, and thank you very much. So, one last quick question because you know on the Kickstarter okay. there there were a lot of great. Uh, actual perks for those who okay. missed the kickstarter where can they get a hold of some of those perks well um most of the uh the things in the kickstarter were uh things that will be available uh on drive through rpg at some point the adventures and the additional factions and things like that uh we did add uh the eight page comic which is in the book itself but there's also dice and art prints and things like that and so we actually do have uh, custom dice for uh, the setting, um, and uh, we do have one that was one set which was a Kickstarter exclusive, uh, but the other is just for our company and so and for our setting. So, if anyone uh, is interested and they missed the Kickstarter and they want to see if there's uh, anything that's still available, feel free to reach out to me, Brandon Aiton at uh, wetinkgames at gmail.com. So just shoot me an email. Say, Brandon, I was uh, I heard you on uh, the podcast. I just wanted to you know, check out what was still available, or if there's something that you were specifically interested in. Shoot me an email, and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. All right, I've got to say, Brandon, that's awesome <laughs> that you're willing to give. You know, you know, just please reach out to me, and I'll see what I can do. You know, that's awesome. Well, no, I and I really do appreciate it. As I said, you know, we couldn't have done this without our backers, and the the only thing is we do have the the exclusive, and that's as I said, exclusive for our backers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but other than that, everything else is uh, is available. You know, and we have you know shirts and dice, all kinds of stuff. The art prints turned out beautifully. So if you want anything like that, in addition to the awesome book, in my opinion, uh, yeah, reach out to me and I'll get back. And, oh, yeah, the art prints that you've shown on the website are freaking gorgeous. Ah, thank you so much. And speaking of website, where can folks find you on the Internet? We're in the process of building our page. But in the meantime, to stay abreast of any developments, any news, any reviews, anything like that, uh, search for Wet Ink Games on Facebook, and we have a a pretty uh, large and active Facebook community. Awesome. And uh, one question I have to slip in there that I, w- I forgot to ask earlier. Tell me about the barbarian rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> so there are, there are three areas, uh, three large areas and in in a number of smaller ones uh, around Europe. They're called the warrens. And, you know, rabbits themselves, they breed like literal rabbits. <laughs> so um, there, there are areas where there's just large uh, populations of these rabbits that are either um, that, that are either taking over uh, the farmland or the region or uh, digging their own tunnel networks and things like that. And some are more barbarian and savage than others. Others are just you know regular Joe rabbit. I you know I work on this train and I'm you know I doing a doing a job feeding my you know ninety kids. 
<laughs> but there are others that um, that are more savage and uh, and militaristic um, that are just constantly at struggle with the local governments and uh, are seen as a thorn in the side of the, the people around them. Uh, and on the cover, you actually see like the more, probably the most savage uh, versions of those rabbits. The majority of rabbits in Europe are completely civilized or uh, they keep to themselves in a warren uh, that's more militaristic. So, uh, there's we give that that option for game masters to where uh or what kind of uh, rabbit they really want to have in that setting <laughs> beware the warren horde oh yeah <laughs> it can be bad you go into a tunnel it's almost it's almost like uh like alien yeah like, was... what do you mean they're in the room <laughs> <laughs> we're not gonna last 10 minutes man <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I, I definitely wanted to hear more about that because the cover where you just see that, that massive swarm coming over the, the heroes on the cover. Oh, yeah. I could so it, see that it, being used. <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that. That was that. It came from another one of our playtest settings. <laughs> well, Brandon, it's been great having you on the show, and by all means, you can come back anytime. I'm going to make sure in the show notes it's got yeah, all the links that we talked about posted so that way it spreads the word. Fantastic. And... I would love to be back. And, yeah, as I said, I'd love to be back, and we, uh, we'll we be able to talk about uh, additional products and additional game lines in the future. Oh, heck yeah. And, of course, we'll, we'll keep Facebooking each other and uh, Facebook on the uh, website for you guys, so that way you know everybody else can hear the, the awesomeness that is the Wild Skies Europa Tempest because it's going to be a fun game. I mean, it's one of those I've been telling my players about it, and pretty much, like I told you when we were talking on Facebook the other day, it's like my old Teenage Mutant Ninja group. You know, it's they're they're interested in finding out just how awesome this game is, so they're, they're going to be finding out soon. Isn't that great? I can't wait to hear all about it. All right. And uh, like always, guys, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, it's been a pleasure sharing this with everybody at home, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the 5th Edition, and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening. <laughs>